0: So, 1 Corinthians 11. As you can see, it seems to say some quite complex things about the relationships between men and women and relationships in the church generally. Um, So I thought perhaps, before we turn to this passage, we ought to remind ourselves of another uh, letter of Paul's in which, it's the letter of the Galatians, 3.28, in which... um, Paul reminds us that in him there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. So let's take, keep that in mind as we turn to this passage. Um, well, we've seen quite a lot about um, 1 Corinthians up to now, and we've read quite, gone through quite a bit of it. Well, perhaps we could try and say at this point, what do we think 1 Corinthians is about um, I mentioned this to Phil and he said well Dick Lucas had told him that it's about over eschatology so if you know what that means um, you can think in terms of that but uh, maybe we might even touch on that next week but I'd like to um, suggest a slightly simpler <laughs> explanation of what 1 Corinthians is um, actually about it's about what are the forces that will ter- tear a church apart and how are those forces to be resisted and what have we seen so far we've seen certainly that the answer is not, more, not just lots more rules that just doesn't work um, you see that Paul remarks on these fault lines in the church again in verses 18 and 19 when you come together as a church there are divisions among you I mean, with some of these earlier when the people were saying I am for Paul, I am for Apollos, I am for Cephas and so on and so um, I think we need to keep this in mind as we come to this chapter what are the forces that can tear a church apart and I um, think we also need to keep in mind that some of, at least some of the problems of the Corinthian church related to sexual morality and sexual practices and so we need to keep that in mind also as we come to this passage. Now, as I said last week, well last time, chapter 10 is about a bit of a watershed. Um, He's talked more generally about the pressures on Christians up to now. Now he starts to um, talk about what happens actually when the church meets together and the next few chapters are really concerned with what happens when the church actually meets together and um, he says that well not everything is bad in the Corinthian church I praise you for holding to the teachings that I passed them on to you so they've not at least become completely unorthodox and uh, gone away from the word of God but nevertheless it's clear as he says that there are lots of things when the church meets together all is not well And so what are the um, two issues here that particularly he uh, deals with? Well, two things. First of all, the dress code, and secondly, um, the the meeting together in the Lord's Supper. Um, Starts with the dress code, interestingly enough. Um, I suppose that makes sense. What's the first thing you notice when you come into an assembly of people of any sort? Uh, what are they wearing? Um, What's, that tells you what they're wearing, tells you quite a lot about their status and their class. Um, And it tells you also a a bit about what um, is, uh, you know, what they're gathered together for as well. If they've all got uh, salopettes and fluffy jackets on, you can assume they're going skiing. Um, what do they gathered together for and uh, their dress tells you that as well and if we don't fit in with the dress code we can be um, a bit uncomfortable I, I, I once um, went to a Presbyterian church on uh, Georgetown which is um a sort of posh suburb of Washington DC and um I was just about to get on the plane. I just had time on Sunday. I'd been to a conference in Washington. I was on my way to the airport, really, but I had time to pop into a service before I went to the airport. Um, And I went into this Presbyterian church in this rather posh suburb. And I, well, let me tell you first of all what I was wearing, which was jeans and a T-shirt. It was very hot, and I was just about to get on the plane. (laughs) Everybody else in there was wearing a black suit and a tie. (laughs) Um, yeah, and I mean, they were, they were friendly about it, they weren't nasty about it, but obviously I felt a little bit uncomfortable, and I guess probably they did too, um, because I wasn't dressed the same as everybody else. Um, and it can affect us, can't it? You feel uncomfortable. Anyway, but the specific item of dress code actually that um, Paul focuses here is actually one of um, headgear. what we wear wear or don't wear on our heads. Um, So that's particularly what he's gonna talk about. Um, And I think we need to be quite careful here not to um, read in our own prejudices, whether they're prejudices of uh, sort of romantic medieval view of womanhood or indeed the prejudices of 21st century feminism. And there are problems with this passage, frankly, in interpreting what it means. Paul tells us in verse 16 that his intention is to avoid con- contention, not to create it. And yet, um, you know, in one sense, we shouldn't be manning the barricades over trivial issues, but it's clear that Paul thinks he's got something important to say here, and we need to try and sort out what it is through the cultural barriers, which to some extent we, we do have. Um, the second part, of course, is um, very familiar to us. We uh, probably read it in at least half the times when we meet for the communion service. I don't know whether Mark's planning to read it tonight or not, but we very often do, oh he's not, there you are, he's got it in the service as well. But we very often do uh, read it in our communion services. But, and we think we understand that very well, and perhaps we do, but we could be missing something by its very familiarity. And The focus is on unity, and yet Paul reminds us that there may be divisions and so we mustn't shy away from controversy in the church totally we want unity but if we're not sometimes prepared to take on the divisions then we land in this kind of moral laxness that was endemic in the Corinthian church so we'll look at the two sections separately Um, I'll spend a bit more time I think probably on the first one simply because it is the more difficult of the two Um, and then perhaps I'll say a little bit about the end on why perhaps Paul brings these two things together. Nope, that didn't work. <coughs> so what's all this about heads and hair and this sort of stuff? Seems a bit strange to us, doesn't it? Really, he seems to, at one point. Paul seems to be saying, um, you know, that the 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 head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man. It seems a rather strange thing to say. I mean, if you took that at face value, then you would think, well, does that mean that the only way that uh, women can obtain access to Christ is through a man? Um, In that case, why on earth in a few pages earlier in chapter seven was he saying that, uh, well, widows, you might be better off not remarrying. It wouldn't make any sense at all. So presumably that's not what he means. Um, so he can't be saying that and it's clearly contrary to the rest of what we read in scripture anyway in chapter 7 of this uh, book and in that verse for instance in Galatians 3.28 that I put on the first slide so he can't be saying that and actually there are other problems with this as well because on the face of it he appears to be misquoting Genesis 1.27 because in saying that um, the image of uh, that 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 man is the uh, is the image of God, and and um, somehow in a sense the woman is not. Because in fact, if you look at Genesis one twenty seven, it says exactly the opposite of that. It says uh, God created man in His own image. In the image of God He created him. So okay, it says man there, but the next line says male and female He created them. <laughs> So it's clear in fact that um, man here means mankind and um, that it includes both men and women made in the image of God. And um, verse seven is actually also quite strange. It says a man ought not to cover his head since he's the image and glory of God but the woman is the glory of man implying presumably that the woman should cover her head. where does this come from uh, it's certainly not Jewish practice because in a Jewish assembly and they still do today when men pray they will cover they do cover their heads they wear skull caps you've probably seen them and um, it's certainly not the pagan practice because um, in pagan worship men and women would pray, pl- pray with their heads uncovered so where on earth does this come from? It seems to be some sort of Christian innovation that on the one hand men and women should both pray but there has to be some sort of uh, differentiation between the two in terms of headgear. Um, well I noticed that nobody's wearing a hat tonight but um, I don't think, uh, you know, is that being lax? I can tell you that when I was, uh, even when I was young there were still a few um, Strip Baptist churches and brethren assemblies that would insist that women wore a veil or a hat. Um, but we've, I don't. There are any church in England at least that still maintains such a rule. And um, are we, is that just 20th, 21st century laxness? Should we be insisting on that again? Or is that not the point? Is, um, but surely God is not really concerned with head style, hairstyles. And perhaps the most confusing thing in this section at all is this word that's that's translated in, at least in the New International Version, sign of authority in verse um, verse 10. Um, The authorized version just says authority. I think the the ESV also says sign of authority or something like that. Um, What is this word and what on earth does it mean? Um, well the the Greek word that's translated that is exousia and the traditional interpretation derived from the context of verse 3 is that it means a sign of a husband's authority over here but the problem with that interpretation is that it just doesn't seem to be what the Greek word means Um, even Leon Morris who's not perhaps the most radical commentator in the world says quotes Greek scholars are saying it just can't mean that. Um, what does exousia mean? Well, it means authority in the sense of um, legal authority, power. It means um, regal authority. And it can mean a sign of authority. But when it means that, it normally means the sign of authority, of the authority of the person who wears it. So for instance, when it's applied to headgear, it usually means a crown. Um, So um, it's used in that way in the New Testament, I think, occasionally to mean a crown. Um, So in the context, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And in fact, to be honest, we're uh, (laughs) not entirely sure what this does mean, but uh, what the Greek scholars say is probably from the context, what it implies is um, to wear some sort of veil or head covering that implies, that shows that this woman is a a woman of honor, a woman of dignity, rather than having her hair uncovered, which, uh, well, we'll come back to having your head shaved off later. But that's probably what it means. It implies that this uh, woman is a woman of honor and dignity and respectability. Um, So that's probably what it means. Paul himself says it's her honor or dignity in verse five. Well, anyway, let's see if we can get our head round what Paul is talking about here. And um, I have to say, when I tried this out on my wife, she's, she's not entirely convinced. She's not being totally submissive about it, but... Uh, <laughs> Well, let, let's try this. Um, I, I think this is something of what Paul's getting at. It might not be um, all of it by any means, but at least perhaps give us some idea of what Paul's getting at here. Um, I'd like you to try and think like a Roman. So here's a Roman, uh, a Roman lady, as you can see. and um, to give, um, oh yeah, sorry. Uh, the other word I didn't mean to mention, um, the other word that he talks about he talks about in verse 15 that a woman's hair is her glory and um, that word is doxa um, from which we get the English word doxology a word of glory or a word of praise um, and that word also has a range of meanings it means a splendor or brightness or magnificence, magnificence. and it can also mean dignity and grace so in a sense Paul is doing a kind of Paul thing that he does often playing off two words of quite similar meaning against each other and he says a woman's hair is her glory so I so, see if we can get our head round this um, all this talk of heads by getting into the head perhaps of this young Roman woman perhaps this is a way to look at it she buys the best shampoo um, You've, uh, you've all seen the shampoo adverts, I mean, haven't you? Is, um, shampoo is, a, is a, a personal hygiene product, isn't it? No, of course it isn't. It's not what they're selling you at all, is it? What, the, uh, what they're selling you is, um, if you buy our products, your hair will be shinier. It will be uh, more flowing, more glorious, more alluring that's what shampoo adverts are selling you and it seems to me that Paul is somewhat on the same wavelength here, he's saying a woman's hair is her glory. So here's this woman um, young wealthy, attractive, educated possibly born in Rome at least certainly a Roman citizen She's married perhaps to a government official or to a rich merchant. She was brought up on tales of Cleopatra. Um, You know the story of Cleopatra, switch lovers as a convenient way of switching alliances. And that's the way she operated. Um, Egypt has a history of women rulers going back to Nefertiti but in Rome itself and in most of the cities of the empire Um, Actually, high office was barred to women, but uh, uh, no no Roman woman worth her salt ever let that cramp their style. Um, Her whole life is spent in advancing her social position and pushing her husband or son or lover another notch up the ladder, even if he doesn't want to go. Um, That's the environment you operate in. That's the way you think, the way you work. And news has just arrived from Rome that Agrippina, the wife of the emperor Claudius, has poisoned her husband, allegedly with mushrooms, and put her son Nero, by her previous marriage, on the throne. Well, okay, that, that's a bit shocking. <laughs> Assassination is maybe a bit extreme, but it's a high-risk strategy, but still, it's, not, it's only an extreme form of what the Roman women were doing every day, uh, manipulating, maneuvering. This is the way things are done. You might consider assassination a last resort, but uh, since Agrippina succeeded, she's gonna get away with it. I mean, Nero's not gonna say anything, is he? Do anything. So that's the way you think, as a, as a high-ranking Roman woman, perhaps. And perhaps you have a Jewish friend Now that might be a little bit unusual, but it's not unknown. And anyway, actually just a a touch of scandal can be uh, quite useful in your social uh, operations. And your Jewish friend tells you that, um, actually it works pretty much the same way in Judea. Uh, She tells you of how Queen Herodias and her daughter Salome had um, conspired to have the prophet John the Baptist beheaded, same sort of thing really. Um, And bizarrely she tells you that uh, when John's cousin Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth was tried, for some reason Pilate's wife actually tried to get him freed. Not quite clear why but the record says that she did. (laughs) But as it happened she was unsuccessful. But this kind of interference by women in the political process was uh, commonplace enough but then your friend tells you that actually this isn't the end of the story of Jesus of Nazareth his followers claim that he'd been resurrected and so you're intrigued and you investigate a bit and it appears to be true so you know what are you going to do about this well what do you do you're expecting your husband home soon so you put on your slinkiest dress and you let down your hair And um, when hubby comes in, you pour him a nice cool glass of wine, and you say, darling, I think we need to check out this new religion. That's the way you'd go about it, probably. Um, And to cut a long story short, perhaps you and your husband start attending the meetings of the church in Corinth. And when that nice, um, educated man, Apollos, is in town, I'm not sure about some of the other people. I mean, Peter's a fisherman. But Apollos is a good educated man. And so when he's in town, you get him to baptize you. But actually, at first, you're a little bit about outside your comfort zone. How does this new community you've joined, how does it work? You don't know the ground rules. You don't know how it operates. But then you've joined this church in Corinth, and when you've been around for a bit you discover well there are factions in the church and you discover that there are some people who are important influential people and that there are other people who don't seem to matter so much who are the people who are going to the top who is it that your husband needs to know and that's no problem you're the past mistress at this game aren't you Um, so what do you do next time it's the agape, the love feast, you, you dig that dress out of the cupboard again and you um, get your cook to wick up, whip up something fancy and uh, perhaps you're too respectable to let down your hair but maybe you just loosen it a bit and you um, glide up to your target and you purr, try some of this meat, it's delicious oh and may I introduce my husband and there you are, you've done it, mission accomplished, that's the way you've always worked and perhaps you don't see any reason to change now well that may be perhaps a bit far-fetched but I think maybe this is does get us some way get a head round what Paul is actually trying to to say here perhaps he says perhaps he's saying that in the church a woman should not attempt to outshine the angels how can a man focus on the glorious headship of Christ if he is distracted by a the glory of a different head in the next row of seats. Perhaps this may not do full justice to the full force of Paul's words, but it might help us to go some way towards understanding. What what would Paul have to say to our Roman woman? Well, it's not all bad, is it? He would have to say, yes, it's good that you've got the best interest of your husband at heart. It's good that you want to encourage your husband to spiritual progress. It's good that you want to help him network within the church, particularly if it's a large one. Women are often better at this than men in uh, meeting and talking to people and and just chatting and communicating. And um, that's a good thing to do. It's just that perhaps this is not quite the best way to go about it If you're going to use your femininity like that, says Paul, how are you different from those who have had their hair shaved off? And again, it's not entirely clear what this business of having your hair shaved off is about either, but certainly in some cultures, um, having your hair shaved off was a sort of ritual humiliation that was um, practiced on women who um, were either prostitutes or convicted of adultery or something like that, convicted of some sexual sin. They would have their hair shaved off. And possibly this is what Paul is getting at here. He says, really, if you're going to behave like that, you might um, might as well have your hair shaved off. And yet this is a subtle thing, isn't it? I just can't help thinking of Abigail in the Old Testament. You remember the story of Abigail. David had um, asked Abigail's husband, Nabal, for some food for his men and uh, basically Nabal had told him to get lost Uh, and David was very angry and um, Abigail hadn't been in at the time but what did she do as soon as she found out she leapt onto her nearest horse and rushed off to talk to David and what did she do? Well frankly she charmed him didn't she? (laughs) She uh, bowed down to him Um, she talked gently to him she talked him away and perhaps that Nabal couldn't she she used her femininity to disarm the situation to make up for her husband's folly and and, um, David's anger was there a hint even of sexuality in that well perhaps there was because um, we know that very shortly afterwards when Abigail was, was um, widowed. Uh, David very quickly snapped her up and married her, so he must have found her an attractive woman. But this is not what she's noted for and praised for, is it? It's her wisdom and her common sense and the way that she used her, her femininity there to cause peace, not dissension, cause uh, to disarm the uh, folly and anger of her menfolk. <laughs> um, so these are subtle things. It's not that, um, that say, that women are supposed to behave like men in the church. They most likely are not. But at the same time, they have to have to avoid sort of sexual exploit- exploitation or using your sexuality as power. Why does he say that? Well, ladies, you need to cut us poor, weak men some slack, frankly. Um, we are too easily led astray (laughs) don't use your freedom to cause a brother to stumble dress with modesty and dignity in the church so that we men are not distracted or tempted and don't try and compete with each other in, in either in terms of a fancier hat or more expensive designer clothes I mean, when places when women do wear a hat in church still, of course, are at weddings. But I don't think that's quite what Paul is getting at, is it, if you looked at the hats that were worn at the royal wedding in Westminster Abbey. Um, I don't think uh, submission was quite what they had in mind. It was more a case of trying to outshine your, your neighbor. Well, okay, maybe at a wedding that's acceptable. If you must do that sort of thing, go to Ascot where it's perhaps part of the fun. But <laughs> you shouldn't be doing it in a church not when the church comes together you should uh, dress modestly to uh, un- to to misquote uh, may west if you've got it don't flaunt it not in the church anyway <laughs> and what's he what is the advice he's saying i say obviously it's not a good idea to go around trying to seduce the elders but well that wouldn't happen would it you wouldn't think so, but in a church not a million miles from here, it does appear to be what's happened. I don't know all the gory details, but it certainly takes two to tango, so there must have been something going on in that church, and of course it caused a great deal of damage. Um, but it, actually, it's more subtle than that. I once heard somebody say, I couldn't track the, down the quotation, unfortunately, but it, it hit the point. It's amazing what a man will do for a woman in a short skirt. and. Uh, <laughs> I think there's a fair amount of truth in that. It's not that we think she's really offering sexual favors, but it is sexual manipulation in a sense. And um, women need to be careful in the church to avoid that sort of thing. Yes, use their femininity, use their charm, use their ability to relate um, in a non-aggressive way, but you know, don't go further than that. men we need to treat our women don't we with dignity and respect we need to remember that they're not shaven women (laughs) they're not objects of sexual gratification and humiliation that's not all they're there for Uh, we want a wife not a mistress of course the sexual connection should be part of the marriage, it's a very important part of it but it's not all of it and of course we um, shouldn't be expecting our, our wives to submit in terms of blind obedience. If what you want is blind devotion, then I suggest you get a dog, not a wife. Um, yeah. See, i take my own advice on that. You, cause the one thing, you, word you couldn't use to, to describe Brenda as is docile, and uh, I think that's, <laughs> that's uh, good, really. Women are partners and mothers within the plan of God. And notice this dress code does apply to men as well. Perhaps we think it's more obviously applicable to women, but uh, Paul says it does apply to men as well. We shouldn't be dressing to shock either. We should dress in a way that is welcoming to those who come in. We dress probably not so much to uh, to please God. Though it seems an odd thing, you know, we are assembled to please God, and in a sense, we dress to please God, but. Surely, really, we are in one sense dressing for those who come in. We want to make them feel comfortable and at home. Not uncomfortable, as I did when I went to that church in Georgetown. That wasn't my fault. That was what everybody wore there. And fair enough, if that's what people there wear, that's the right thing to wear. But uh, you yeah, know, we want to try and avoid making people feel uncomfortable when we come in, either by, say, maybe wearing a suit and a black tie. But on the other hand, uh, we shouldn't be dressing, we shouldn't be sort of wearing hoodies and uh, torn jeans either, I would suggest, because that would also make people feel uncomfortable. So we need to uh, dress in a way that looks welcoming and inclusive to those who come in. We adorn ourselves in order to adorn the gospel of Christ. <coughs> so let's move on also to the next. I can get the slide to change. Oh, sorry. That was I missed that one out. Ladies, don't uh, attempt to outshine the angels. Perhaps that's what he means when he says, "Because of the angels, Jesus said that um, in the resurrection will be like the angels." But perhaps what he's saying, you shouldn't be attempting to outshine the angels. Let's move on to the second part of this uh, section, this chapter. And again, it's worth looking at the words that are actually used here, the, the meaning of the Greek word. Um, the Greek word translated supper is non or deepnon. I'm not sure of the exact pronunciation, to be honest. Um, but it, what it means is a formal evening meal. Um, Brenda and I once um, ate in a, at a fairly trendy um, gastro pub out in the Yorkshire Dales. And um, a gastro pub in the Yorkshire Dales is pretty much like a gastro pub in Sussex, but with one exception. And that exception is that uh, they insist that what they're um, selling you is supper, not dinner. Um, (laughs) If you want dinner, you come at lunchtime. (laughs) Um, And it's supper, it's an evening meal, often a, a formal meal, but basically an evening meal. That's what the word means we distinguish don't we between a communion service um, and a social church lunch and a charity supper although at Calvary we actually do hold all of these I mean possibly verse 22 is a justification for such a distinction says if you want to eat you can eat at home but um, actually uh, in the early church they used to hold, hold what was also often called a love feast an agape that word is used in 2 Peter 2.13 and in Jude verse 12 literally means just a love a loving if you like um, and um, it seems to have had all three functions in fact it was um, a community meal it was a communion service um, and also perhaps there was. there's a pagan tradition of a feast called an aranoi in which the rich would share their food with the poor and possibly the Corinthian church or the church had adopted a bit of this idea as well that as they met together it should be a sharing those who had um, much should share with those who um, had little and this idea may have been incorporated into the Christian practice so I think what he's saying here appeals certainly doesn't only apply to the uh, communion service because I think um, some of the things he said perhaps would not be directly applicable to the communion service as such, but it applies whenever we meet together. It applies when we meet together for a church lunch or whatever as a, as a social meal. And actually the um, word that tr- is translated lords, genitive case, possessive, belonging to the Lord, that's not actually what the Greek says. It's trans- it only occurs twice in the New Testament, this word. Um, it's kuriakon. Um, it's uh, translated Lord's Supper here and Lord's Day in Revelation chapter 1 that's the only two occurrences of the actual word kuriakon although um, kuriakon means Lord of course is very common but um, it's actually not a, a possessive not a genitive case it's not a possessive word it's an adjective it describes the type of supper or the type of day that you're talking about and in other words it's saying that we would literally translate it perhaps the lordly supper or the lordly day or the lordlike supper and uh, of course what paul's saying here is that well you may be meeting for supper all right but your supper is not lordly it's not you may be eating supper okay but it's not a lordly supper why not well, he lists the reasons, doesn't he? Verse 21, "It's unseemly. It's a time of drunken revelry, maybe more like a feast of Bacchus than a feast of Christ. The Greeks, of course, would have been Romans would have been familiar with the Bacchus, the god of wine. Um, and maybe this looked more like a feast of Bacchus. Bacchanalia, I think, was what they used to call it, wasn't it, um, rather than a feast of, of wine, a feast of Christ. And in verse 22, it breaks the rules of charity in which the community had things in common together in which they shared but instead uh, the poor believer is not only is he not going away unfed because the richer members of the congregation are are sharing, you know, sort of try this caviar guys but not sharing it with the poorer members who didn't have anything perhaps much to share themselves and therefore you know the, the people wouldn't share with them because they weren't sharing. And so not only do they go away unfed, but they go away humiliated as well, because it's shown that they have nothing and say, look, we we have plenty, but you have nothing. The exact opposite of what the community should be doing, sharing together. And it breaks the rules of the family meal, doesn't it? in which all the whole family eats together. But in verse 21, it says, as you eat, each goes you goes ahead without waiting, without waiting for anybody else. That's a thing that's very much under attack in our families today, isn't it? Families don't eat a family meal together. You know, the husband is home late, the children need to get to bed, they eat early. Um, the mother can't you know the mother's had enough so she turns on the television and sticks them in front of the television and sticks a plate in front of them um, the family doesn't meet together but that is a very dangerous thing it's a very dangerous thing for a family and it's a very dangerous thing for the family of the church because it shows that we're not really interested in each other doesn't it we're not really want to have that time to communicate not just um, to communicate the food, but to communicate the, and share the affairs of the day. A family meal is a very important social occasion in fact. It's uh, what's part of what holds a family together. And when, the, uh, when we eat together, it's part of the way we operate as humans, that when we eat, we make a social thing of it, and we meet together to talk and discuss and to share but this supper was breaking the rules of that people were just turning up with their lunch or their supper rather not their lunch and they couldn't be bothered to wait for anybody else because they weren't really interested they just wolfed it down and off they went and um, it despises the assembly of God's people so it's unholy. unholy he says this again in verse 22 do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing shall I praise you for this certainly not and possibly also in verse 29 he says um, anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself their meetings together were not set apart to the Lord they were in the literal sense of the term unholy so there were un, this supper was unlordly because it was unseemly, uncharitable unfamiliar and unholy so we need to keep all these things in mind and I say not just in our know, communion service either some of them are more appropriate probably to a church lunch but uh, however we do it we need to uh, have these things in mind but of course, when we think of the Lord's Supper, we do particularly think, of course, of the communion service, the supper that the Lord himself hosted in that upper room. And so Paul points us in that direction. And unlike this supper that they were, the Corinthians were celebrating, which was designed in all ways to uh, separate them, to drive them apart, the Lord's Supper focuses on the things that unite us so what does he say he says in verse 24 that we all remember the same Lord in verse 25 we all participate in the same blood in the same covenant we share it together we all share in fact the same sacrifice in verse 26 we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and we proclaim that death for each of us and we all do it until he comes in other words we all await the same returning Lord so when we come together for the Lord's Supper instead of focusing on things that drive us apart we focus on the things that unite us Um, we focus on the body and the theologians can argue about whether the body means the um, the Eucharist itself or the um, or that church is the body of Christ. Um, I think probably the correct interpretation is that in a sense it means both. Um, It means that the Eucharist, the thanksgiving as it, um, as it reminds us of Christ, but also of the community of God's people, the body of Christ. And Paul reminds us here that we are what we eat. The secret of a healthy life is a healthy diet. That's true. You know, everyone ordinary every day diet, isn't it? We can't live on a diet of sugar and McDonald's hamburgers, and you know, and uh, it's just not healthy. We'll get fat and we'll get ill. And maybe, actually, that's what he's all he's saying in verse um, uh, verse 30. Many of you among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Maybe this was simply as a result of the um, drunken orgies that they were holding it just was too unhealthy for them but I think most of us would probably say actually he's saying a bit more than that perhaps he's saying that um, if what's true of our physical diet of our physical bodies is true of our spiritual diet and our spiritual bodies also we are what we eat and if you live on spiritual junk food you're going to get spiritually sick and um, maybe it was even a direct intervention judgment of the Lord he says a number of you have fallen asleep in other words presumably died Um, maybe that was a direct judgment or maybe it was a spiritual sickness like um, happened to Ananias and uh, Sapphira that's right yes or maybe as I say it was just the result of too much wine made them ill we don't know but um, whatever it was they were eating themselves ill instead of eating themselves healthy but when we come to the Lord's Supper we need to eat ourselves healthy (coughs) so what Paul is telling us here in this passage is basically isn't it to behave in a seemly manner Um, to observe the proprieties it's alright to fit in with the social conventions of the society that we live in to some extent we should do that because we don't want to make unnecessary barriers as Paul said you know if he was in a Jewish meeting he'd behave like a Jew if he was uh, among Gentiles he'd behave more like a Gentile not because he was being hypocritical but just because he wanted to fit in with the society that he was in and to some extent we need to um, observe the proprieties of that cultural norms of the society that we live in in one sense it's right that we do because we're not in the business of shocking people for the sake of shocking them on the contrary Paul tells us we need to have a good reputation with those outside as Phil was reminding us when we looked at that passage in Timothy it's about um, elders should have a good reputation outside but of course as Chris pointed out well of course we should all actually be aiming for that Um, we're not in the business of shocking for the sake of shocking we don't want to put any unnecessary barrier in the way of those seeking admission just by sort of dressing in a a weird way or something this is why frankly I have a problem with with communities like the Amish it seems designed to exclude people Um, we should be trying to include people not exclude them Um, but at the same time we need to remember that the church challenges and ultimately undermines those norms and um, those social conventions because as Paul says in Galatians there's no, there is neither Jew nor Greek uh, slave or free male or female even in Christ Jesus and the distinctions that the world maintains are in fact broken down by the church it's um people have commented on the fact that, well why didn't Christianity confront slavery for 1800 years, 1700 years? But actually, if it did in fact. Um, if you um, read what it says about slavery, it didn't confront it head on. It didn't say no, this is absolutely wrong, and must stop. But the way it told masters to treat their slaves the way it told um slaves even to behave to their masters in one sense actually undermined the very fabric of the idea of slavery and in fact um in early western um so early western europe um slavery wasn't a big issue at least in the in the extreme form um but there was the f- feudalism, and there was you know the Attempts at the king to have an absolute right over, the, over his subjects, and, and the church did indeed oppose those to some extent, not always consistently, not always um, coherently, even. But it does, the Christianity does undermine these distinctions. And so, in the end, when it takes root in a society, it will reshape it. But Christianity, in that sense, is subversive, it's not revolutionary. It doesn't uh, attack the society head on, it subverts it and the way that it thinks. And perhaps we need to bear that in mind when we think about how we embed ourselves in the culture that's around us. It undermines the social distinctions on which the institution rests. So what is, uh, just to sum up Paul's message here, the gospel teaches men to treat women with respect and women the same with men, not to be provocative. It teaches the rich to treat the t- t- treat the poor with compassion. And in our uh, meetings at least, to override the social distinctions that our uh, society makes much of because we're all equal before God. We all know the hymn, uh, uh, forgotten the first line now having said that Um, oh, we'll see if Alexander what's the thing how does it start um, all things bright and beautiful yeah we all know the hymn all things bright and beautiful but of course there's a, there's a verse of that hymn that we never sing and the, that voice goes that, I don't know why he wrote this but he wrote the rich man in his castle the poor man at his gate God made them high and lowly each to his own estate well that's true as far as it goes but we we all feel uncomfortable singing that wouldn't we there's something not quite right about that because we are all one in Christ Jesus and look, it, it is true that um, you know there are divisions of social class and of, um, some people certainly do have more money than others and yet we are in the end all one in Christ Jesus because God invites all of us rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, man and woman, to the wedding supper of the Lamb.